But tonight I'd like to speak about dukkha. And I think most of you probably know this word from the Pali text, uh, dukkha, which is often translated as suffering. But I think that sometimes that translation is a little too strong because some of us might be experiencing dukkha, but it's not really suffering. So the translation that is sometimes a little closer to our experience is unsatisfactoriness, that, that quality of our experience or our experiences being unsatisfactory. Or really what it points to is the way that experience is incapable of satisfying, that any experience is not going to ultimately satisfy us. And so we call that dukkha. And I I actually like the word dukkha. I think it's a fun word to say, you know, dukkha. And I think that I like it because it touches something very real. You know, it's like, yes, that's, we experience a lot of dukkha in our life. And I, I don't know about you, but until I came to the Dharma, until I came to practice, I spent most of my life trying to avoid that, trying to avoid dukkha. And by avoiding dukkha, what I attempted to do was find as many experiences as possible that would be satisfying and make me happy and make me feel like my life had some meaning or sense of worthwhileness. But until I came to the Dharma, I really realized how I wasn't really fully living my life, that to a large extent I was living in avoidance and uh, pretense and suppression. And so now, by bringing in this truth of dukkha, I feel like my life is so much richer, so much more alive, so much more full. And it's almost paradoxical in a way that as we let in this unpleasant or the more unsatisfying or even the suffering aspect of life, that our life actually becomes more full, more rich. This is really one of the paradoxes in a way, one of the contradictions that the teachings point to where we say, no, that can't be true. I have to keep avoiding. I have to keep resisting. But until we actually start to have the experience, we find out that it's true. And this was really the first noble truth of the Buddha when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, India, 2,500 years ago. This was one of the revelations of the, that there is dukkha in this life. There is dukkha in this life. And when I heard this teaching, that there is dukkha in this life, some way I felt a sense of relief there was a way that I actually could put the burden down in some respect because I always felt that it was my fault. You know, that somehow I was suffering because I was doing something wrong or I was a bad person or I didn't understand what was really going on here. And so when I heard that more impersonal teaching that there is suffering in this life, there is dukkha in this life, I went, yes, it's universal. It's part of being human. It's not only me. 
because I spent so much time, so much, so much of my life in the mind state of self-pity, of poor me, why is this happening to me? It's only happening to me. And it was a very depressive kind of mind state, a very kind of anxious and confused mind state that was really a lot of my adult life until I came to the Dharma. And the Dharma began to not only wake me up to the truth that this is a universal among all beings, but also that it wasn't just personal to me. And I could release something there. So this, so fortunately, though, the Buddha didn't stop with there is suffering in this life. You know, that's the good news. The, he showed us uh, what the cause was, which is the uh, this tanha or this drivenness, this compulsion of mind, this ambition to gain and become and build up and accumulate all this kind of craving and clinging that we get caught up in our mind and that we can know this, we can understand this and we can release this. The third noble truth being that there is a way out of this suffering, there is freedom. The fourth truth being the path that we are practicing here, the path to the way to be free of suffering. So, so this is the way, this is the, uh, another context to understand what it is that we're practicing here. On the second day of a retreat, we often begin to experience more of this dukkha because we are more present we're more here, we're more in connection with ourself, and we're being invited again and again to pay attention and to look at our experience moment after moment after moment. This whole, since the first night when John talked about the repetition, the repetition again and again and again, and then I spoke about returning back, returning back, this invitation to come back again and again to what's happening here. And so when we do that, we find out that a lot of our experience is not so pleasant. It's kind of unpleasant. It's pretty unsatisfactory. It's pretty um, uncomfortable. And not only in the body, but also in the mind. I should say not only in the mind, but also in the body, since a lot of us are experiencing most of our dukkha in the mind but a lot of it comes in the body as well. So as we pay attention and we become present, this is what we confront. So in many ways, the mindfulness practice is a confrontation with reality. We actually have to confront the present experience that we are that's manifesting in the moment, and it's confrontive because we don't want to. We would rather avoid it, and many of us have developed many good strategies that we draw on, that we use to avoid feeling the pain and the discomfort. And it's been important for us because we develop these strategies as a way to get through when we're young and we're vulnerable and we're innocent, and the world can appear to many very threatening and uh, very disorienting, and a lot of us didn't get very good training how to navigate and negotiate through our early childhood in our life. So we've had to develop a lot of these defensive strategies to help us so that we could survive. Many of us, it's basic survival 
for other, others of us, it's just this basic navigating and staying in contact and in relationship and, and feeling a quality of love and appreciation and caring as we're growing up. So these strategies that we've developed have a certain intelligence to them. And yet as we get older and we start to be uh, uh, able to uh, uh, function in our life better, we're still... We're st- these, these habits, these, uh, st- these defensive strategies are, are still there. They're kind of habitual responses to a lot of the conditions and situations that we engage in. And we kind of falter. We, we get lost or we get confused because some of that old history or the old conditioning is still operating. In a way, we haven't really, many of us haven't caught up with ourselves. You know, it's like we are, you know, much more mature and, you know, uh, adult and wise and, and connected. But yet there's this, you know, the old niggly parts that keep showing up. And so, so part of the practice, the mindfulness practice, is kind of catching up with ourselves. So to see who we are now. Who am I here now as I sit here? And so part of what we look at and discover are ways that we still are avoiding and suppressing and pretending or feeling fearful or feel threatened or need to close off or shut down and all these ways that keep us from being fully in contact with, with, with direct experience, with, with ourselves and our life and, and the world around us. This is the, the opening that begins to happen through the practice, through the mindfulness as we pay attention as we discover where those sense that where that sense of limitation is, and we might call this 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 sense of self. This is the how we take our how we know ourselves or who we take ourselves to be. And unless we examine this, we can feel quite strongly the sense of limitation, uh, or a sense of being small or contracted or uh, defined in a in a small way. So part of what we're exploring is how to expand, how to become larger, how to, how to begin to touch this vastness that Gil spoke about last night. The vastness that we are. Not a vastness that we have to go find and then reach and settle into, but a vastness that is already here. Touching something that is greater than the way we define ourselves or how we know ourselves or take ourselves to be. <coughs> so, so we examine one of the things we are confronted with is this dukkha, this unpleasant or this unsatisfactory aspect of our experience that we want to cut off from or we want to avoid. When the Buddha was elaborating on the first noble truth, he talked about a few different kinds of dukkha. One of the kinds of dukkha that the Buddha spoke about is the suffering that comes from being in a human body. And this is called dukkha dukkha. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, this is real. This is real dukkha. This is dukkha dukkha. You know the dukkha that comes from being in a human body. And this, you know, when we come on retreat, this is one of the first 
forms of dukkha that we encounter because we're sitting in these difficult postures. Many of us don't have you know, the flexibility and the stability in our bodies to be able to sit for long periods of time. And yet we're asked to settle into a kind of stillness and a, a calm and tranquility and, you know, the body's aching in all different parts and, you know, the mind doesn't feel very still or tranquil at all, you know. Got all these different kinds of discomfort that arises in the body. Dukkha, dukkha, pain of the body. But then there's the pain of the body just from the being born. You know, birth is very painful. Uh, aging, as we get older, is very painful. As the body starts to break down and, and we become older and that sense of how we knew ourselves begins to change and it's difficult to let go of youth and the beauty and you know, the, the suppleness of youthfulness. And then sickness, when the body breaks down into disease and, and sickness. And then death. So birth, aging, sickness, and death, it's dukkha, dukkha. And we can't avoid that. You know, this isn't, this isn't something that we are doing wrong or there's nothing wrong with us. It's just the pain of being in a human body. Impersonal. Dukkha, dukkha. And yet we fight it. You know, we resist it. We, want, we don't want it to be there. I mean, how many times has it happened to you that you maybe, and it's happening now, you come to retreat and then you find out you're getting sick. You know, the cold symptoms come, you start to feel headachy and weak and tired and go, this is interfering with my retreat. You know, now I can't do my retreat. But is that true? You know, is it, is it really an interference? Is it really a distraction? In our mindfulness practice, we include everything. Nothing is a distraction. Nothing is in the way. We bring everything fully into our mindful attention, into our awareness, with as much kindness and compassion as we possibly can. So the conditions are now manifesting in this way. The body, the physical conditions are now manifesting this way. So how are we with that? What is our relationship to that? And I'll speak a little bit more about that in a moment. This dukkha dukkha. Or if we're tired, you know, we were speaking about this this morning, you know, coming in and feeling very tired and sleepy. Many people are exhausted. Many people talked about being very stressed, you know, either from a very challenging year or from a number of things that were happening in their lives or very specific situations that people came in with that were very stressful, relationships, jobs, whatever it is, physical situations. People are tired. You know, I think we as a culture are very tired. I think we're very exhausted from, the, from all the rush and the stimulation and the speed and the busyness. And I don't think we really know how much that impacts our psyche and our, our nervous system and our physical body. So when we come to retreat and we stop and we slow down, we start to feel all of that. Take a deep breath, and it feels so good to stop. You know, if we did nothing else, just, just stay in the silence and stop. Just stop. 
and even just walked around and be in the nature and just rested. I mean, that would be so deeply healing for all of us. Very powerful. We're doing that and we're doing more. We're really cultivating this quality of, of, of mindfulness and heartfulness, these qualities of our, of our being and our nature. So we, we, yet we can be very hard on ourselves, very judgmental, very um, uh, have lots of ideas about how we're supposed to be here, and yet not really paying deep respect to the way we are, to the conditions of mind and heart that we actually come in with. One thing that moves me so much about this practice is how deeply respectful it is to our being, to each of us, to ourselves, just the way we are. We hear that again and again, you know, from the teachers and from the teachings. Gil said it already, you know, you're fine just the way you are. You don't have to be any different. The conditions of your mind and your body and your being are fine, perfect even, just the way you are. So we come here too to be reminded of that. You know, because we struggle and we want to change things and we don't want things to be the way they are. We, 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 we try to control and push against and resist. And then we're reminded, oh yeah, it's actually okay. I'm okay. Things are okay just as they are. And so mindfulness, our mindfulness is also a reminder of this because our mindfulness doesn't care. Mindfulness doesn't have a view or an opinion or a a belief or an idea about how I should be or you should be. Mindfulness just knows. Mindfulness is in contact with things just as they are. It's what we put on top of our experience, what we call the extra bit. You know, Gil was talking about the commentator you know, at the foot, in the football game. You know, it's that extra bit that really makes things diff- difficult for us. I want to, want to read you or uh, t- t- tell you about a discourse from the Sam- Samyutta Nikaya, one of the Pali texts of the Buddha, and this particular discourse, this particular teaching has been very important to me, and I, I like to teach it whenever I get the opportunity, because I think it's simple and it helps us understand what that extra piece is that we bring to our experience. It's, uh, it's uh, the title sometimes translated as the dart or two arrows. And so somebody asked the Buddha, what's the difference between unenlightened, an unenlightened disciple and a noble enlightened one? Both experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. So what's the difference? So already you see something to reflect on because I thought for a long time that enlightened beings didn't feel any dukkha. They didn't feel any unpleasant feelings. Did you ever think that? You know, I thought that once somebody was really free, it was just all bliss, all light, all love. You know, that there wasn't any unpleasant feelings. I mean, I think most of us <laughs> have dispelled that one. 
But so it starts with this question. Both experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings, which are the three kinds of feelings. So the Buddha answers like this. He says, when, uh, when an unenlightened one encounters unpleasant feelings, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, becomes distraught. He experiences two kinds of painful feelings. So I should say, right now the Buddha is talking about unpleasant feelings in the body. So physical unpleasant feelings. When an unenlightened one encounters unpleasant feelings in the body, he grieves, laments, wails, beats his chest, and becomes distraught. He experiences two kinds of painful feelings, one in the body and one in the mind. It's as if an archer, after firing one arrow into a certain man, were then to fire a second arrow. That man would experience pain from both arrows. He experiences two kinds of pain, one in the body and one in the mind. And then he goes on to say, the noble, enlightened one, when he encounters, or I'll say this case, when she encounters unpleasant feelings... She neither grieves, laments, wails, beats her chest, or becomes distraught. She only experiences one kind of painful feeling, the painful feeling in the body. Just as if an arrow having shot, just as if an archer having shot one arrow into a certain person were to shoot a second arrow but miss the mark, that person would experience pain only from the one arrow. She experiences pain in the body, but not in the mind. So I think it's interesting for us to reflect on how we shoot that second arrow. I really like that metaphor, because that's actually what we're doing. When When dukkha, or unpleasant feeling, arises in the body, it's just unpleasant feeling. We don't have to wail and beat our chest and get angry and get irritated and resist it and struggle and all that because that's the pain in the mind. That's the dukkha in the mind. And the more that we're actually able to see that and to notice that, we can begin to help calm the mind, settle the mind, and then just feel the unpleasant feeling in the body as much as we possibly can. We see what kind of capacity we have to be with that unpleasant feeling and to find out what happens when we're not building it up through the story that we bring to the experience in our mind. There's so much extra dukkha. There's so much more contraction and pain and and tension through the way that we're relating to our experience. And it's not only physical experience. This particular um, sutta talks about physical, physical experience, but let's extrapolate it to the second arrow that we shoot at the mind at the mental experience. We're having a certain kind of thought. We're having a certain kind of memory. We're having a certain kind of... Um, uh, say, say, for example, we're really judging our experience and we're really giving ourselves a hard time. And then we shoot the second arrow. Boy, you're really stupid because you keep judging yourself so much. Why can't you just shut up? And then you shoot another arrow. Okay, not only a second arrow, but then a third arrow. 
gosh, I keep doing this to myself. Oh, I just, why can't I get over it? I feel so bad and I'm such a horrible person. And then we shoot another, we just keep shooting arrows, you know. And at some point we can actually stop. If we understand what we're doing, if we understand that this is the way that we're actually creating our own pain, we're actually creating our own dukkha. So dukkha dukkha, the pain of the body, is not a kind of dukkha that we can stop or we can change or we can transform necessarily. I mean, certainly there are things we can do to help ourselves feel better, to make ourselves healthier, to be stronger people. But ultimately, there's going to be dukkha dukkha. So this isn't the kind of dukkha that we can necessarily transform, that we can be free of. But the dukkha that we can be free of, the dukkha that we can release, is the way that we are shooting those arrows at ourselves. The way that we keep the story going about who I take myself to be how I define myself, how I build myself up in my own mind as this bad person or this uh, person who's not worthy of the practice or all kinds of doubts that I have about myself or the ways that I uh, get angry and then judge myself for that or all the different kinds of ways that manifest within our, our mind. This we can bring a transformation to. So we're looking at this relationship. We want to look to see what, what way are we relating to our experience. We have the bare experience of the sensations that arise in the body, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the neutral feelings. How are we relating to those? Because the opposite response to the rejection and to the pushing away and the avoiding is the holding on and the grasping on to the sensations that actually feel good, that we like. It's like, oh, now I'm getting someplace. Now my experience really is starting to have some significant significance. Now I really am touching the happiness that the Buddha spoke about. And then we're off on a whole other story about it. It's just the other side of the clinging, the other side of the grasping. And that, too, creates a contraction creates a constriction in the body where we are cutting off from our experience, from the totality of our experience, both through the rejection and through the grasping and the clinging on, the holding on to that which we like. They're just polar responses and we just get caught going back and forth and back and forth and we're not really free. There's no freedom in that. So what we're trying to look at, what we're trying to explore is where is the freedom then? How do I really experience freedom that the Buddha is pointing to? Which is not through the rejection. It's not through the holding on. Not through the building up stories and making the meaning out of our experience, but rather allowing the experience to arise and to pass, to come and to go. There's a kind of dukkha that, the, that I'm actually speaking about that the Buddha talks about, which is called viparinama dukkha. And this is the pain that's caused from grasping on to that which is changing, 
to our experience, which is changing. It's the psychological pain that arises from our confusion about the way things are, that we might be able to control our experience, that we might be able to fix our experience, that we might be able to um, actually dictate how our experience is going to be. And this is dukkha. This is the dukkha that we can actually transform when we pay attention to the way that we're actually doing that. How, how, what's manifesting in our mind? What are we telling ourselves? What kind of ideas and assumptions and beliefs do we have about our experience and how we can control our experience? And when we notice this, then we can talk about letting go. Letting go. Letting go of these ways that are not um, wise. They're, they're, they're uh, unwise, an unwise view of the way things are. We, don't, we are confused because we don't understand that anything or any experience will ultimately be unsatisfying if we try to hold on to it. Such a beautiful teaching that when we come on retreat, we can actually feel and sense and know the way that we are doing that, the way that we are interfering with our experience. And we don't have to look very far for evidence that things are changing. Things are changing in every moment. What happened to that storm that we had the first night we were here? It was actually a very big storm. I saw the paper today, and it was headlines, you know, major winter storm hits Marin County. You know, trees were falling down, houses got, a couple houses got smashed, 80-mile-an-hour winds in the night. A wild night, our first night here. What happened to that? The next day, you know, it was sunny and warm, and we were out in the city, standing out in the sun, getting the heat on our face, and everything was calm and tranquil. Change. We all know about change, but we, we don't maybe go deep enough with it to see that every moment, every moment is changing. Nothing is going to give us that lasting satisfaction. This is an email my friend sent me a few Christmases ago, and I've, I've read this before, and I, I, again, love to read this. It goes like this. So the latest from my eight-year-old grandson, Seth. After all the build-up and all the anticipation, the opening of stockings and gifts, he was a bit moody and grumpy. I asked him what he was feeling, and he said, it's all the presents. They take you up, and then they drop you. He really understood that he'd been caught and that it couldn't deliver. Ah, well, he said, there's still one of the gifts that hasn't dropped me yet. And we talked about how they can never deliver real happiness, only short-term pleasure, and not nearly as much of that as promised. It took me until the age of 50 to begin to understand that. How lovely, you know, this little eight-year-old boy just could feel that he just couldn't get what he wanted from those Christmas presents. Felt the frustration, felt the agitation that, oh, I just want it, but it's not going to give it to me. 
This is what we do with our experiences. We can see it so clearly in our meditations, how we want our meditation experiences to give it to us. You know, I remember so many times where I just, I just wanted to find that magic wand. You know, somebody just give me that magic wand and I can just, you know, wave it and just feel that release and that freedom. But unfortunately, it's not like that for us. We seem to have to practice. And this mindfulness practice, this mindfulness practice really, in a way, I think, is the magic wand. It is the magic. Because it gives us some direction. It points the way to the freedom, to the escape, to the release that is truly possible for us. The mindfulness practice I think of as a listening practice. It teaches me how to listen to what's happening in my experience, to be in such direct contact with what is in my feelings and my emotions and my thoughts, my images and my body, my memories, the conditioning, my history, all of that. I can be in contact with myself. And I think that that is, as the more that I do this, I realize this is truly what I'm longing for, is to be in contact with myself. Because when I'm in contact with myself, I'm in contact with life. I'm in contact with all the things around me. And then all things are myself the sights and the sounds and the tastes and the touches and feels and the, and, and, and the relationships with people and with things and nature. It's all myself in the biggest sense of the word. And I long to be in contact with myself, with life as it is. It seems like my reason for existence What other reason would I be here for but to be awake and in touch and alive and connected to all that is? And so this longing, as I I follow this longing, I start to be in contact with more of life, with more of the world, with, with more of other people. As I free up, as I begin to free up some of these defensive strategies or the ways that I keep myself closed or I keep myself small, I start to expand a bit more. And in that expansion, I'm in more contact. And that contact is rich. It's lovely. It's full. And many of you have felt this while you've been here, even in this short time, you know, just this contact with the night sky or with the trees or or with the community here. And sometimes the contact isn't necessarily this sort of open contact that brings a sense of love and and happiness, but some for some people here too that contact also brings brings you in touch with the sadness, with the pain, with the dukkha. And we love that too. There was somebody who came into an interview today and wanted that 
sadness and that, that compassion that arose for him in that sadness, wanted that so much and felt so good to be in contact with the truth of the dukkha, that people are suffering and that many people here are in pain and are suffering and that this man could feel that and sense that and open his heart to that. And it felt good. It felt sweet. It felt like what he had come here for. So this expansion, this expansion, this opening to life in all of its manifestations. We talk about opening to the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys as a metaphor for opening to our life. Opening to our life is opening to ourself. Because unless we open to ourself, we cannot open to life. This is what we want. This mindfulness practice is very powerful because in a moment when we are mindful, we are not locked in to our clinging and into our identification. It's a moment where we break that momentum of our mindfulness. This is a quote from my, one of my teachers, Sokni Rinpoche, a uh, Dzogchen teacher from the Tibetan lineage. He says, In a moment when we are mindful and awake, we are not locked into the clinging and identification, as I just said. At that time, mindfulness creates a gap or break in the momentum of our habits. When a gap is exposed between one thought and the next, this gap is like an open door to the naked original mind. When this happens, the innate qualities of the awakened state can begin to shine through naturally. That break in the momentum of our habits is actually this exposure to the naked mind. And I love the sense that it allows for, the, for, that, for all that we are, the, 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 the being that we are, to shine through. And he goes on to say, With mindfulness, the string of thought that ties confusion together is suddenly no longer tying anything together, and the confusion naturally falls apart. When there is no pursuit of past thought and no inviting of future thought, that gap means the whole delusory process vanishes. The qualities of the heart are the afterglow. So in that moment when we break that conditioned habit, that conditioned response, and we're not relating to our experience in the same old way, 
if we don't go back into the past, into that conditioned reaction, and we don't move into the future, meaning then we're starting to build it up, and oh, I've become something, and oh, what does this mean about me? Everything falls apart. And we're not caught in that delusion, we're not caught in that veil. We don't have the membrane of distortion over our clear seeing. We see things clearly the way they are, even if it's for an instant. And that instant is very powerful. I read this from somewhere. It says, imagine a cave in the depths of a Himalayan mountain where not even a single sunbeam has ever penetrated for 100,000 years. If you go in, a, go in and switch on a, a torch or a flashlight... It doesn't matter how long that darkness has lasted. It is dispelled in one instant. (coughs) Mindfulness is like that light that we shine in the dark closet or the dark crevices of our own mind, our own heart, and we shine the light on, and for that instant, all that darkness is dispelled forever and ever until something happens where we close up again. And we will, because that's our conditioning. And yet with the mindfulness, we can pay attention and see how we're doing that. How did I close up? How did that happen? How did I get back into this reactive pattern? What happened? Everything was so clear and was so open. I was so present, and now I'm here. So rather than judging it or making ourselves wrong or thinking it shouldn't happen, oh, now this is what I get to pay attention to. Now this is what's here for me. This, these, these are the present conditions. Now let me pay attention to this and see if I can bring a certain kind of curiosity and, and an invest, investigation, a kind and compassionate awareness. So our practice, again and again, is to see if we can cultivate these, these qualities of the heart, or this, as Sokni says, the afterglow of the heart, and to see if we can, can keep shining those on our experience so that they get stronger, too. And then this allows us to be more present and stronger and more clear, and it, it, it develops like this. This is the process. This is the journey. Speaking of journeys, I'll read this um, called Your Journey by Susan Florence. There is a journey awaiting you. It comes in truth and promise when you reach the point of not knowing who you are or where to go. This most precious but painful passage is the journey to yourself. You will travel a place never before visited where you meet unspoken fears and unearth-buried truths. You will climb high and perilous mountains, those that rise up from inside yourself. You will explore forgotten waters held deep in the sea of your soul. You will be stranded in the wilderness and find a way through pathless land. You will be lost before you are found. You will be empty before you are full. You will cry the deep sobs of the earth 
and tears of rain will cleanse the house around your heart. In time, because life, like birth and death, knows its own time, your fears and struggles and unknowing will be transformed. You will become a mountain place where eagles soar. You will become a reflecting pool which sees and knows the mysteries of your life. Your heart will be light like a butterfly as you follow the current of its true desires. The flight of the honeybee will be yours as you seek the nectar of what brings sweetness to your daily life. Most of all, you will become who you truly are. Your life will hold truth and promise and meaning, and the heart of the heavens will hold you in your heart. This is the journey, the path, or we might say the pathless path. I like that because we don't really know where we're going. And yet we have some sense of direction. And so we listen. We listen. And pay attention and see what to do next in this place of not knowing. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.